0: On 21st of December last year, sadly just too late to make it into our Top 10 Cases of 2021 podcast, the Court of Appeal gave judgment in Bath Rugby Limited versus Greenwood and others, a potentially very significant case on restrictive covenants involving stadium redevelopment plans for Bath Rugby Club. It may have escaped our annual review, but we still have our On the Case series. So in case you too missed it over Christmas, we have the ideal experts here to explain the importance of Bath Rugby for us. Tom Weeks, QC of Landmark Chambers, who acted for the successful first appellant, and Caroline Priest, partner at Royd's Withy King, who's instructing solicitors. Welcome to you both. Hello. Good to speak to you. So um, first, uh, could you just outline for us what Bath Rugby has planned for its proposed redevelopment of the wreck uh, that lies at the heart of the case?
1: Well, at the moment, the uh, the playing and supporter facilities at the REC are not up to modern standards by any means. The, the club has gone through a number of different uh, plans you know, for its stadium, but basically what they want to do and what they plan to do is to improve the experience for both players and supporters. So the aim is to uh, replace the stands, uh, one of which is currently temporary and has to be put up and taken down again uh, every year. And put in some modern seating, increase the capacity, and at the same time perhaps include some commercial uh, units on site, you know, a restaurant or a bar, um, and some shops which will be open on match day and non-match days as well.
0: Uh, it sounds sounds understandable, particularly after the the, the the couple of years that professional sports clubs have had to, to want to try and. Uh, boost that, that, that match day revenue in those ways. And, but um, a sticking point arose uh, in the form of a restrictive covenant. So can you explain the history of that covenant and, and the parties claiming the benefit of it and in fairly straightforward terms, what problems it caused?
2: So the wreck was part of the Bathwick estate, which um, was a 600 acre estate in Bath developed by a Leicestershire family in the 18th century. In 1922, that Captain Forrester was the tenant for life of the estate. He was a keen sportsman, he was an amateur jockey, and in fact, he was president of Bath Rugby between 1898 and 1926. In 1922, Captain Forrester sold the reg to a company specially set up to own the reg. And in that conveyance, the company covenanted with Captain Forrester and his success in title not to build anything on the reg which may grow to be a nuisance or annoyance or disturbance, or otherwise prejudicially affect the adjoining premises or the neighbourhood. Now, given that at the time of the 1922 conveyance, Captain Forrester was the president of the club, it seems unlikely he would have wanted to do anything that might cause a big problem for the club in future. But if the Covenant had been enforceable, the Covenant might well have caused a problem for the club because it is so restrictive. As I've said, it, it covers building anything on the reg, which might prejudicially affect the adjoining premises or the neighbourhood. So if the Covenant was enforceable, it might have been argued that Bathrop is bigger stadium with its bit greater crowd capacity might have breached the Covenant.
0: Uh, You can definitely see how that that would be a problem, and particularly with those other uses that that Caroline mentioned, uh, all creating additional sort of noise and and, uh, excitement around around the area. Um, Now, uh, restrictive covenants uh, have a a little bit of a reputation for being tricky beasts. Uh, Judge Paul Matthews, at first instance, described the law relating to the annexation of the benefit of covenants as being one of the most technical aspects in what is already a technical area of the law. Uh, And in the Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Nuge said this area of the law was both technical and complex. So what is it that makes this area of law quite so complicated? To
2: answer that question, we need to go back to the basics of the law. As all law students learn in the great case of Tulker Moxhay, which related to a proposal to build on Leicester Square, the courts invented a new equitable interest in land so the court in that case held that a covenant or agreement by an owner of land relating to what could be done on the land or what could be built on the land can run with the land so as to bind the original covenant or success in title now before the planning system was created in 1948 there was much to be said for recognizing covenants as equitable interests in land. But the courts recognised that there was a risk with this. If you allowed land to be burdened by covenants, the titles to land could become clogged up with covenants in a way that would impede socially beneficial developments. So in the latter half of the 19th century, the judges came up with rules to try and keep this new legal interest in check. For example, It was held that a covenant can operate as an equitable interest in land only if it's restrictive, only if it benefits some neighbouring land. And they also came up with some rules relating to what our case is about. Principles about how a conveyance imposing a covenant must identify any land to which the benefit of the covenant is to be annexed. And the reason for that is that the land intended to have the benefit of the covenant might not be apparent from the covenant itself. So if I own some land, which is subject to a covenant prohibiting building more than one house on the land, that might not tell me what land was intended to have, to have the benefit of the covenant. So the court invented principles which were intended to ensure that the benefited land was easily or clearly identifiable. The idea presumably was that a owner of land or a potential purchaser who might be a developer that they would be able to quite easily perhaps by um, consulting a conveyancing solicitor find out as i say re- relatively quickly and reliably what land um, the benefit of a covenant was annexed but the problem for practitioners and judges is that there are a mountain of authorities about the requirements for the annexation of the benefit of covenants to land, the principles set out in those, those authorities are not easy to identify or to apply. And there's, there's also a difficulty of reconciling the stated of principles with the outcome of, of many of the cases.
0: OK, so against that uh, complicated background and uh, those many, many authorities stretching back over, over uh, centuries, I imagine, um, Bath Rugby understandably took legal action seeking a declaration that the restrictive covenant is now unenforceable. However, uh, Bath Rugby was unsuccessful at the High Court in 2020. So why did the, the trial judge at first instance dismiss the claim and find that the covenant is still enforceable?
1: Well, the the, the judge found that the benefit of the covenant was was annexed to land that had been retained by Captain Forrester when the wreck was sold off. In particular, the judge felt that the use of the words successors in title meant that at least some of that retained land was to be benefited He then went on to say that as the covenants uh, against causing nuisance and against erecting buildings both referred to prejudicially affecting the adjoining land or neighbourhood, it followed that the benefited land must also be the adjoining land or neighbourhood. He said that adjoining land was clear enough um, and that neighbourhood meant the area nearby the wreck. This followed uh, the wording of a drainage easement in the 1922 conveyance, which referred to the other buildings and land of the Vendor and his tenants adjoining or near to the wreck. Uh, The judge found that the defendant's property uh, fell within that definition.
0: So uh, last year, uh, you took the case to the Court of Appeal on behalf of Bath Rugby. Uh, and uh, your client got uh, exactly the Christmas present it was hoping for, as I mentioned at the outset, as the court allowed uh, your appeal. So, how did the Court of Appeal handle the key points?
2: So, I was instructed for the first time for the appeal, and the strategy we adopted for the appeal was to adopt a laser like focus on the particular drafting of the 1922 conveyance. And in particular, we attacked His Honour, Judge Paul Matthews, is holding that the parties to the conveyance intended to annex the benefit of the covenant to the adjoining premises and the neighbourhood by focusing on the word neighbourhood. And we persuaded the Court of Appeal that the concept of a neighbourhood was not an adequate or sufficient or even possible way of describing land to which the benefit of a covenant Uh, was to be annexed. And we persuaded the uh, uh, court that the concept of a neighborhood, the problem with the concept of a neighborhood is it doesn't identify particular properties. So it's not like neighboring land, adjoining land, land nearby, all of which have been held capable of identifying the land to which the benefit of a covenant uh, is annexed. If push comes to shove, it's always possible for a judge to apply uh, such such terms, neighbouring land, adjoining land, land nearby. And even if it's difficult, even if it's difficult, if push comes to shove, a judge can identify the properties to which those expressions apply. In contrast, the concept of a neighbourhood has a kind of social aspect. And in respect of any particular properties, it is amorphous. It is not describing any particular properties, and therefore it was uh, an inapposite, an impossible way of identifying land uh, with the benefit uh, to to which the benefit of the covenant uh, was to be annexed. And as a result, we persuaded the Court of Appeal that no one today has the benefit of the covenant and the covenant is therefore unenforceable.
0: So did the Court of Appeal have anything of importance to say about the wider legal principles?
2: So, as I've said, the Court of Appeal's reasons for allowing the appeal were based on its interpretation of the particular mm. bespoke drafting of the 1922 conveyance. But especially when considering some of the alternative ways in which the case was put. And I should mention that um, the club has a lease of part of the wreck. There's also a freeholder. And the freeholder joined in the appeal um, uh, and and made some uh, submissions in support of the appeal. So when considering some of the the alternative ways in which the, the case was put, the judgments in the Court of Appeal have lots to say about the law in this area, which is of great interest and importance to practitioners. But it is a mark of how difficult the law is in this area that much Of what the Court of Appeal said about the wider legal principles. In fact, maybe everything that the Court of Appeal said about the wider legal principles is tentative and inconclusive. But three things uh, uh, that are important that the Court of Appeal uh, dealt with. First of all, the Court of Appeal indicated that if a covenant is annexed to a named estate, and this, this related to an alternative uh, possibility that the covenant was uh, the, the the benefited land was the Bathwick estate. The Court of Appeal said that if a covenant is annexed to a named estate, the covenant is likely to cease to be annexed to any land if that estate, as a recognisable entity, has ceased to exist because it has been sold off. A second point made by the Court of Appeal is if a covenant is entered into as was the case in our case with the tenant for life under a settlement and his successors in title, there is room for argument about whether the reference to successors in title is talking about only about successors title to that life interest or whether it includes purchases from the tenant for life. And the third and final point, and this is a great uh, interest and importance. The Court of Appeal had something to say about a a puzzle and difficulty that confronts practitioners in this area. In two earlier cases, Marquess of Zetland and Driver, 1938 case, and Cress Nicholson and McAllister, a 2004 case, the Court of Appeal held that the benefited land, land to which the benefit of a covenant is annexed, must be easily ascertainable, easily ascertainable. But in neither of those cases did the court Appeal offer an explanation about what that meant. And over the decades, various imprecise ways of identifying the benefited land, whose application may be uncertain, albeit conceptually possible, have been held to work. So, as I mentioned earlier, expressions like neighbouring land, adjoining land adjoining property, and so on. Now at the trial, His Honour Judge Paul Matthews, in effect, interpreted that requirement out of existence. And Lord Justice Newey, who who delivered the leading judgment in the Court of Appeal, thought much the same. However, two of the judges in the majority in the Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Newey and Lady Justice King, doubted whether His Honour Judge Paul Matthews and Lord Justice Newey Neu- were correct in what they said about that requirement. The majority in the Court of Appeal thought there was a separate, easily ascertainable requirement. But unfortunately, for practitioners and uh, judges in future case cases, neither judge offered any help to practitioners and judges when trying to figure out what that requirement means. And given that Bath what Rugby had won on other grounds, there was no need mm. for the court to explore that issue. So we've now had over the last 80 or so years, three occasions on which the Court of Appeal said that the benefited land must be easily ascertainable. One day it's going to have to tell us what that means. Mm. But until then, there is considerable doubt
0: about that. Mm. We await a suitable case, and it sounds as if um, the, the textbook chapters on restrictive covenants don't need to be wholesale rewritten. But but this case will be a useful uh, update to, to the next editions, I would guess.
2: I think the practitioner books will need to be revised to take into account what the Court of Appeal said in Bath Rugby about the wider principles of law. is is of interest and is important.
0: Mm-hmm. So setting things out nice and clearly for us as as we approach the end, what what are the practical implications of this decision for Bath Rugby and its redevelopment plans?
1: Well, I mean, for Bath Rugby, it means that it can now start uh, to move forward with its plans for the new stadium. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, subject to obtaining planning permission, which will probably be another battle. Um, (laughs) You know, it's... It can do if it can get planning, it can develop out the, the, the stadium without fear that what will be a, you know, a multi million pound um, investment won't be halted by perhaps a single resident claiming that the development breaches the covenant. So for the club, it's huge. It's massive.
0: Uh, I'm sure you'd uh, agree that Captain Forrester would, would presumably put his thumbs up to that. I think so. <laughs> um and how, uh, lastly, if at all, do you think professional advice in relation to restrictive covenants will change as a result of the Court of Appeals judgment in Bath Rugby? So the
2: case is a reminder to the developers and those acting for them that even if a covenant seems to indicate that the part is intended, that the benefit of a covenant should be annexed to some land, it is important, and bearing in mind that the covenant in this case was made with the vendor and his successors in title. It is important to scrutinize the convenance imposing the covenant with great care to see if it identifies any land intended to benefit from the covenant sufficiently clearly and in a way that would mean the covenant would still be enforceable today. So for developers and their advisors confronted with a covenant which seems to impede a development They need to ask, does the conveyance adopt one of the standard conveyancing formally for identifying land to which the benefit of the covenant would be annexed? If not, the wording needs to be scrutinised with great care to see if it is adopted. If if within the conveyance, you can see some sufficiently clear um, description of the benefited land. And then, even if the convent has managed to annex the benefit of a covenant to some land, as at today's date, does that land uh, falling within that description remain in existence to enable the covenant still to, to be enforceable? Or perhaps has the covenant been uh, the benefit of a covenant been annexed to an estate which perhaps no longer exists?
0: Okay, so uh, many thanks to you both for catching us up on Bath Rugby, a case that, um, based on your careful analysis, would almost certainly have cracked our top ten had the Court of Appeal not left it until the last day of term in 2021. Um, To everyone at home, you have been listening to On the Case from EG.